Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Tara Miller. So here's one of the big things I remember from biology and studying genes in school. Blue eyes are recessive and brown eyes are dominant. It's actually more complicated than what I learned, but the idea was that if you've got two parents, they've both got blue eyes, they're pretty sure to have a blue-eyed child. If a child's got a gene for both blue eyes and brown eyes, the brown-eyed gene is going to win out. Advances in the world of biology over the past several years have now added up to this. In some animals, scientists are now able to alter the genome of an organism. So the characteristics it passes on to its offspring are different than the characteristics it was born with. And if you create what's called a gene drive system, a particular feature can become more than dominant. So, so powerful that every offspring is going to have that feature. And every offspring of the offspring, no matter what the mates have, will also have that feature. That's a big deal. And it's a scary deal. We have more power to shape the surrounding environment than we've ever had before. And we haven't yet developed the tools necessary to decide how we should use it, at least not with sufficient wisdom and humility. Kevin Esvelt leads the Sculpting Evolution Lab at MIT, and one of his focuses is mice. A single researcher working in the lab could make an organism where if they make a mistake or it gets out, could start a process of changing all of the mice over many, many generations, mind you. Do you as a scientist worry about that? Every day, because we do make mistakes in lab and not all scientists are necessarily aware of the consequences. Esfeld is at the forefront of thinking about where these new biological tools are going to take us and who has the right to use them. He says he's not so much worried about an alteration to an animal that a scientist might make as he is worried about ensuring the public knows what the heck is going on. The odds are it's not going to have any ecological impact whatsoever. But that doesn't matter. What would that screw-up say about our ability to keep control and responsibly develop technologies of this power. That's what I'm worried about. This is someone who has helped develop a powerful new technology, and he says he feels morally responsible for what happens. So here's the plan. He wants to launch a test with extreme caution, total transparency. The test ground would be two wealthy islands in the Atlantic, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. The islands struggle with a very serious problem, Lyme disease. It's a major problem that is destroying the iconic image of American childhood. I mean, we both have three-year-olds, right? Right. We want our kids to be able to run through the woods without a care. Right, right, And nowadays, Lyme disease is so prevalent that, well, we're at least going to have a care even if they're not. That's right. And you have to really closely inspect your kids afterwards because the ticks are very small and you never know where they're lodged and that kind of thing. I've talked to a lot of leaders of environmental groups who are very concerned that because the kids don't run around outside, they're not growing up with the same kind of appreciation for the natural world. So the question is, what is the smallest possible change we could make in the environment that would solve the problem of tick-borne disease? And can we develop that technology, that kind of change, with a well-informed, yet reasonably small, local population that really cares about it? And we want those things because we care about informed consent. Right. We we can't do this without the people who will be af- affected by it because we're altering the shared environment. 
So with Lyme disease, we're looking to the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard because they have some of the highest rates of tick-borne disease in the country. I was shocked when I was looking into this. You know, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the population has Lyme disease in general, but I would guess it's pretty small. 300,000 cases a year, almost all in the Northeast. Okay. But in Nantucket, it's like almost half of people have Lyme disease. So, I mean, this is a really, really major, major problem for them. A little, you know, island right off the coast of Massachusetts. Definitely. So the problem with tick-borne disease is, of course, it's the ticks that bite us and infect us. But the ticks aren't born infected. They have to bite an animal that is infected first. And that's not actually the deer. The deer aren't a host of for the Lyme bacterium or okay. any of the other tick-borne They just go pathogens. for a ride on the deer. Well, the, tick, the more deer there are, the more ticks there are. Okay. Because the ticks bite three times, and the third bite is a deer, and then they lay eggs. So okay. every deer often will have a... A thousand female ticks attached to them. Whoa, every one of those gosh. female ticks will lay more than a thousand eggs. So you can think of every deer as a walking million ticks. That's that is a striking and scary image. But okay, continue. <laughs> so this is why there's been controversy over maybe on the islands if they could just well if they just shot all the deer then they would not have a problem. But they've decided they're not going to do this mm-hmm. because well Bambi. But then what if instead we could tweak either the mice which are the source of most of the infections because most ticks get infected when they bite a white-footed mouse, which is the native mouse here in the Northeast. Or the ticks. If we altered either the mice or the ticks so they couldn't carry disease, then the problem would largely go away. Right, right, right. So the idea is if we take a mouse that has resistance because we've helped it along with vaccines or because it's been exposed to lots of tick bites and Lyme disease, it will develop antibodies that protect it from those things. And then we encode those in the genomes of baby mice, then those baby mice will grow up immune from birth and they'll pass that immunity on to some of their offspring. So essentially, you're creating a community on, let's say, Nantucket of mice that give it a little time. Mice don't live super long, but give it a few generations, all the mice are going to be resistant to Lyme disease. So when the ticks bite them, there's not going to be you know, Lyme disease passed on. That's the idea. But to be clear, we are not proposing using a gene drive. After talking to the communities, it became clear that most of them would prefer that we release potentially hundreds of thousands of engineered mice that are nonetheless 100% mouse, rather than, say, a thousand with some foreign DNA that would cause it to spread over generations. And our number one rule in this is we do only what the community wants. But on the mainland, there are billions of mice. Mm -hmm. So on the mainland, we would need some form of drive system. So our idea is that we should start on an uninhabited island with mice that don't have a drive system. And we're hoping that the citizens of Nantucket and the vineyard can help us choose which island they want, decide who should monitor the experiment. So it's going to be some little island off the coast of Massachusetts that's not inhabited but has some mice on it. Has mice that have, has ticks that has lime Lyme-infected ticks. Yeah, yeah. And then release enough mice there to immunize the local population, see what happens. Does the rate of infection in the ticks go way down? Because no infected ticks, no infected kids. And then see what else happens to the ecosystem there. And then the citizens of Nantucket and the Vineyard could decide whether they wanted to release mice on Nantucket and the Vineyard. Okay. Uh, by the way, when you say to Nantucket, you know, we could do this by bringing you 100,000 mice... Have you ever imagined what that looks like? 
you're bringing over 100,000 mice to an island. Sure, but that's not as many mice as they already have. Okay, but <laughs> can you imagine you're on a boat oh, with sure. 100,000 mice? You've thought about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the reason why it's feasible, though, is because in research, I mean, most of the, or at least a large fraction of the mice used in research every year, of which there are well over 100 million, are raised at Charles River or Jackson, or Jackson Labs, both in the Northeast. So with your Lyme disease project, what feedback have you gotten from Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket? Are they willing to let you fiddle with some mice and bring them over on your bark of 100,000 mice? Well, so far we've had one public meeting in each case and met with the boards of health, and the response has been remarkably positive. Hmm. If they consent to proceed, um, when would the mice be introduced? What, what kind of timeline are you looking at? Probably about seven years from now on Nantucket oh, okay. Vineyard. Well, like we're giving right. people plenty of time. This is not overnight. We're going to have many, many subsequent meetings to discuss things. Again, we want as many people to be involved as possible, regardless of how it comes out. Right. And from my perspective, if people say no, that will be disappointing. But it's sometimes it's equally valuable to show, as a scientist, that we are willing to drop it and walk away. Because the people need to know that we are willing to drop it and walk away. That has not always been true to our shame. So then let's talk about the mainland. If you wanted to change something like mice that carry Lyme disease or mosquitoes that carry malaria, Zika, whatever it is, um, obviously you cannot say to a mosquito or a mouse, just so you know, the people who've agreed to this live within these boundaries. But when you get to the the sign that says you are entering the next town, you really need to stop there. Don't reproduce, just don't cross it. Um, so at that point, when you decide, gosh, Zika is just too big a problem or malaria is just too big a problem or whatever, who gets to decide um, whether animals are permanently changed so that they don't, can't, you know, carry those diseases anymore? And that's the hard question because it's clear that everyone all the people who might be affected by that change must have a voice and arguably a vote, although not everyone gets a vote in every country in the world. Mm -hmm. But we don't have good ways of making those kinds of decisions. The closest parallel is biocontrol, where there's an invasive species that's causing a problem. So ecologists go back to the native environment, try to find a predator or a parasite that is exclusive to that species and that species only and then introduce it to control it, mm -hmm. which recently, the vast majority of the time, has worked perfectly. But those that introduced parasite or predator on the invasive species is, of course, doesn't know what geographic boundaries are either. So countries have to agree. Right. So right. in the case of Africa, which is most urgent because malaria is the, certainly the biggest problem that we could solve with this, the most recent example was that the cassava mealybug was the introduced pest that was devastating cassava crops. And so they had to agree to introduce a parasite that controlled the cassava mealybug. And they did it. But somehow, the fact that it's deliberately engineered at the genomic level makes it more dramatic in people's minds. Hmm. It's more intentional on our part, and that means people are more concerned by it. Is and it more so, dramatic in your mind? Frankly, no. Okay. I mean, the process by which, for example, we breed traditional crops nowadays, traditional organic non-GM crops are created primarily by creating lots of genetic variants through radiation or chemical mutagenesis. That's not very natural. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that creates mutations all over the genome, most of which are not characterized or tested in any way. We just look for the phenotype. That is the characteristics of the plant. Are the berries bigger and more succulent and juicy and taste better? Right. And if they are, then you pick that one, never mind what other changes to the chemistry of the plant might be made. And we're not actually required to regulate that in any way. So you're saying we have uh, ideas in our mind about what's natural and what's unnatural. But to you, looking at it as a scientist, knowing what goes into the quote-unquote natural and what goes into the quote-unquote unnatural, it feels more like a spectrum than a black-and-white situation. Absolutely. And when you think about it, technology is all about, it's the definition of unnatural. Technology is what we use to change the natural state of being. The natural state of being for us is largely being disease-ridden and poverty-stricken with never enough to eat and constantly dying of horrible diseases like smallpox, which now we can thankfully get rid of because of technology. I mean, mm-hmm. all, of, all of medicine, all of agriculture, all of not, not just the electronic media that we're using to communicate, everything is technology that separates us from, well, living in caves. Now, when you sit back and think about where this is all headed, this technology in general, um, and you think about, you know, the president of the United States or, um, you know, the prime minister of Great Britain being told, like, okay, here's what you could do. There, there are these really big problems. You are in a democracy, but you also have been chosen as the person in charge. Um, where in three, four, five years do you think we're going to be in terms of addressing some of the you know, Zika, malaria, Lyme, some of these uh, diseases that are transmitted by animals that we now, in fact, can change so that they don't transmit them anymore. I'd be surprised if we do much in three, four, five years. Okay. Just as a society, we don't have the governance systems necessary to make those decisions. And our track record of introducing new technologies is frankly terrible. That's why there is so much suspicion over GMO foods, for example. I mean, it, they basically you can check off the list of everything not to do when introducing a new technology. Like That's the classic case study. Can you imagine that decades down the line, we won't have availed ourselves of the ability to eradicate really serious diseases that are carried by animals? I don't think so. I think one way or another it will be done. And the question is what will the social consequences for how we deal with technology be? Because this is just the first step. This is a technology that, while it is unique in its ability for, to allow one researcher to affect so many other people, not that it can't be countered, actually. You can, this is also unique in that you actually can defend against it. It spreads very slowly. It's very easy to detect by sequencing. You can't hide it. And you can build another one that will, oh, that will do a find and replace on the original one. So if something goes wrong, you can find and replace and, and remove it. And we're working on ways of trying to turn the population back to the exact original sequence. But we know very well we have not been kind to the planet. We have definitely messed with ecosystems before t- to sometimes tragic results that things don't always go back exactly the way that they were. So even if we can turn the DNA back, that doesn't mean that the arrangement of all the species in the ecosystem goes back. And so this is a technology that looks scarier than it actually is which means that it's perfect training wheels to get us to figure out how to deal with the things that are more powerful. and have Because this is the first step towards what I would call a shared impact technology, that it can't be done without affecting large numbers of people. And it's easiest when it's just a one person, one choice. And we don't have, we, we need to figure out how to do the other side. Kevin Esfeld is a biologist. He runs the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab. 
Kevin, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks so much. want to read more about gene drives and the work that Kevin Esfeld is doing, we've got the basic science as well as info about his project to potentially eliminate Lyme disease from Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard at our website, innovationhub.org. 